Hello and welcome to Finding Truth Matters with Dr. Andrew Corbett. And here's Jude who's going to say, if you have received the grace of God, it will change the way you live. You will live differently. Don't tell me you've got it. Don't tell me you understand it. Show it to me. Tonight from the book of Jude, a straightforward look at authentic Christian faith, what it's got and what it's not. Let's join Dr. Corbett now. This is Jude. Who is Jude? Jude is, he identifies himself as a servant of Jesus in exactly the same way that James, his brother, did. And he also identifies himself as the, the brother of James. So we're given a clue as to this man's identity. Now, if you do a little bit of Googling, a little bit of research, you're going to go to certain Catholic encyclopedia websites and they are absolutely going to have a... Um, what's another word for hissy fit? They're going to have, they're going to have a problem <laughs> with the identity of the author of this book. Why? In fact, I was reading one Catholic encyclopedia and one Catholic website that was going to great lengths to say this is not actually the brother of James. This is not actually the brother of Jesus. Now, what's at stake here? Well, what's at stake is if this is who this person claims to be, then it totally changes the very core of Catholic teaching. And we'll see why in a moment. Now, why do we suspect this is Jude, the brother of James, the brother of Jesus? Why do we suspect that? Because in Mark chapter 6 and verse 3, it, it identifies the brothers, the four brothers. There are four brothers named. There is James. There is... Simon, there is Joseph, and there is Jude. And they are named. Mark chapter 6, verse 3. It's also Mark chapter 3, verses 31 to 35. You'll also find it in Matthew chapter 13 and verses 55. And this is where this exchange happens, where the brothers of Jesus, along with the mother of Jesus, come. And they, they call for Jesus to come to them. And you remember in, in this exchange where the, where the four brothers of Jesus were, and it says, and his sisters, and his mother. So presumably shortly after Jesus turned 12, Joseph, his thought-to-be father, probably died. So we have Jesus and his at least six brothers or sisters, so four brothers and at least two sisters, that he grew up with. Now, if this is the case, if this is Mary with her children, as the text actually says, then it kind of undermines the notion of the perpetual virginity of Mary, wouldn't you think? It becomes a problem. <laughs> now, if that's a problem, then the, one of the core Catholic doctrines is that Mary is the co-redemptress. With Jesus Christ. And if you are into subtlety, you would have noticed in Mel Gibson's movie how he portrays Mary. And Mel Gibson is a, a Catholic and he's presented Mary as the co-redemptress, the one who was co-redeeming along with Jesus. Now that's not New Testament teaching. That is not what the New Testament says at all. 
The New Testament says that salvation is found in none other than Jesus. There is no co-redeeming here necessary with Jesus. It also says, as we've seen in those verses, that Mary was not a perpetual virgin after she gave birth to Jesus. She went on, as the text indicates, and she had at least six other children. So there's no real reason, apart from a bias when you approach the text, to dismiss that this guy is who he says he is. Jude, the brother of James, servant of Jesus. Now, this is interesting. This word servant, the Greek word is doulos. And if you know the word doulos, after one of the OM ships is named doulos. And it means a bond servant. And it's the same word that his brother used. So when we look at this question, who is Jude, we can identify him fairly clearly. This is the one who's the brother of James, the brother of Jesus. And when we, when we look at this epistle, I think whenever we look at any epistle, we ask certain questions. We ask, who's writing it? I think that's an important question. And, and for most of the New Testament, we can answer that question, except for the book of Hebrews. We don't know who wrote it. It could not have been Paul. So we don't know who wrote Hebrews. But this one, we can accept it was Jude. So the next question we would ask is, when was it written? And for, for most people, when I've said, you need to answer that question, when was it written? They, they go, well, I don't really care when it was written. Well, I want to show you why you should. Because, for example, if you read in the Old Testament that the prophets are prophesying that Israel, in particular Judah, will be restored to their land, you need to ask a question. Did they prophesy that before it happened? Do you think that's an important question to answer if we're going to take Scripture seriously? I mean, it's hard to treat Scripture as divinely inspired and authoritative if you've got someone pretending to prophesy something that's already taken place and their prophecy is just a mock-up. So that's a reasonable question. And of course, we have the record of what Jeremiah the prophet, when he prophesied that Israel would be restored to its land, we have the record of it in Ezra and Nehemiah, that they were indeed restored to their land. And then interestingly, after that time period, no prophet says they'll be restored to their land. Why? Because they were. There's not a mention of it in the New Testament because it didn't need to be mentioned. They were in their land. So when something is written, does matter. Now, in the New Testament, it matters when something was written. Because if you understand what happened in the first century, it will help you to understand why a particular book is being written. So we have the expansion of the church from the day of Pentecost, where we had the early church burgeoning, growing. And there are minor skirmishes happening where local synagogues are opposing the work of the church. And eventually the, the heat from the synagogues gets so intense that we find in Revelation chapter uh, uh, 2 that these synagogues are called synagogues of Satan. And if you know what the word Satan means, it means adversary, one who opposes. And so this, this persecution intensified. It, it, it was there early in the peace with the Apostle Paul. We read the account of the Apostle Paul persecuting the church in around about uh, 
46 to 47, uh, sorry, 36 to 37 AD. And then from that period on, we see that the church, apart from some of the minor persecutions that came from synagogues, it was, it was steady as she goes until 64 AD. In 64 AD, there was a Roman emperor by the name of Nero. Now, he'd already burned a part of uh, the city of Rome because he wanted to set up a monument to himself, which he eventually did. But when he, when he burned the city, he actually blamed the Jews. But in particular, it's the, the historian Tacitus who recorded these were not just Jews. These were Jews who promoted a teaching from the teacher Christos. And most historians look at that and go, this must be those Jewish Christians teaching the teachings of Christos, which is the Greek word for Christ. And we read in Acts chapter 18 that at that time Priscilla and Aquila had to leave Rome because they were accused of, of, you know, Caesar had accused them of sabotaging the city and so they, they had left. So in 64 AD, sometime after this, Nero made it law that, you, that the, the empire, everyone in the empire would worship Caesar. And so Caesar worship became the law and he saw that there were Christians who refused to comply. And ironically, they were charged with being atheists because they would not embrace God. They were called atheists. And so Caesar Nero then decided that the, the, the only logical thing to do to these Christians was to kill them. And a campaign of war began against Christians. Tens of Thousands of Christians were massacred across the empire. Now, if you know that and you read your New Testament, you want to be asking a question like this. Is this epistle written before that started or after that started? If you know that when First Peter was written, it was written after it had started and he talks about the intense sufferings that have begun, you can now put a frame of reference to it. And go, ah, oh, I can see it now. When you read of the intense persecution coming from Judaism toward Christians, you can then understand 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, where Paul writes to the Thessalonians, and in mockery of the high priest, who had become a political office, he wasn't he didn't care about God, he didn't care about the spiritual health of the people, he was a political animal. And Paul the Apostle, referring to this man, says he's the man of lawlessness. It's a mockery statement. It's a statement of the one who should be upholding the law is the man of lawlessness. And it matters that you know when 2 Thessalonians was written, which was fairly early, when the only persecution that the church had at that time was from the synagogue and the temple. So that matters. So here we have Jude and the persecution is just beginning. So we are around 64 AD and things are heating up. 
We've seen his brother James already write his epistle, and he wrote his epistle around about 40, 45 AD, very, very early. So we have this epistle of Jude. He describes himself as a bond servant, a bond slave. That was not a compliment. That was not something where children grew up when you asked them the question, one day when you grow up, what do you want to be? I want to be a bond servant. I want to grow up and be a slave. No kid said that. And yet Jude and James wore it as a badge of honour. And they knew something. And it's almost as if these Christians who were living around the time when the persecution began, which we read... Jesus prophesying about this event in Matthew 24. He calls it the Great Tribulation. And, and these guys seem to suggest that being a servant of Jesus Christ was the highest honour. And we read in the closing chapter of the Bible itself, in Revelation chapter 22, verse 3, that there is only one group of people invited into the party. It says this, On the throne is God. Beside him is Jesus Christ, and around him are gathered his servants who worship him. There's only one group invited to the party, Julos servants. We hear Julos servants, another word for servant is the word minister. People call me a minister and I go, yes, my child. It's a, it's a nice, it's a, it's a word of honour and respect, but not then. It was a condescending word. To be a minister was to be at people's beck and call, to do what they want when they wanted, to serve, to give. And we want that culture in our church today. We want to be servants of Jesus Christ. And this is the badge of honour that Jude Described, And this is about the time it's written. The persecution has begun. Now, why was it written? We're going to see something very interesting. We see it in no other epistle. This is what Jude says. I want to write to you about this. But I'm not going to. And now that totally intrigues me. I wanted to write to you about this. But I... He might as well say, I feel compelled to write to you about this instead. Now, here's the interesting thing. This guy, when we read this epistle, it sounds like he's actually got something to say. There are some preachers, and I don't necessarily put myself in that category of preachers, that you could listen to and you could sit there and you go, don't stop, keep going. This is good. I need more of this. And Jude, I read this and I go, what would you stop for? You're just getting warmed up and you stop 25 verses. Imagine Jesus Christ approaching you saying, I'm going to allow you to write something that is going in the canon of Scripture. You know, just give me three years, Lord, I'm going to get it ready right now. It could be big. I've got a lot of gripes. Jude hasn't done that. 25 well-chosen verses. Very, very deliberate. Um, to be able to say a lot with just a few words is an amazing ability. G.K. Chesterton had it. He could say a lot 
with a few words. In recent times, well, recent times, middle of the 20th century, the one who took over G.K. Chesterton's mantle of being able to say a lot with a few words was Ernest Hemingway. Ernest Hemingway lived a tragic life, but boy, he could use words. He was a wordsmith. And, and, and legend has it that once he was in a bar somewhere and, and a lady came up to him and said, you're Ernest Hemingway, you're the man who's just won. In, like in one year he won the Nobel Prize for Literature, the next year he won the Pulitzer Prize for Literature. This guy could write, he knew words. And she came up to him and said, you're the man that they all talk about, aren't you? And you're the man who can say a lot in just a few words. And she said, I bet you could tell a short story in just six words. And he looked at her. And he said, I can. And he told her a six-word story that she looked at him stunned after he said it. And then she began to weep. Then as others had hushed to listen to the story, they began to weep as well. One of the most profound stories ever told in just six words. Would you like to hear it? <laughs> Here it is. For sale. Baby shoes. Never worn. The art of good storytelling is to let the words explode in the mind of the reader. Jude is going to explode your mind. At times, I find Jude shocking with what he says. He takes words, and they, they are not cheap words. These are words carefully chosen. Why did he write this? It seems that Jude was really concerned. In a way that his brother... 20 or so years had been concerned, 20, 30 years earlier, James had, had written because he was concerned that people didn't understand faith. See, to the Hebrew, you, what you believed was not so much what you said, it's what you did. To the Hebrew, if you wanted to say thank you, as we've looked at this before, you didn't say thank you, you did an act of thanks. You honoured that person in front of others, you honoured them. That's why the Hebrew would say thanks. So a Hebrew was very acted out. And so when we read in James about faith, James is saying if you've got real faith, it's going to be living faith. It's going to be acted out faith. And here we have Jude. His concern is about the abuse of the grace of God. And I read this and I go, my goodness, 2,000 years later and we've got the same problems. People don't get the grace of God. They don't get it. And here's Jude who's going to say, if you have received the grace of God, it will change the way you live. You will live differently. Don't tell me you've got it. Don't tell me you understand it. Show it to me. So he's concerned about people who he calls have perverted the grace of God. Perverted the grace of God. Oh, boy, I don't want to jump ahead of the text, but this is, this is so relevant for today. People need to understand the grace of God 
And they especially need to understand how not to pervert it. Now, when Jude says, and let's, let's read the next verse, verse 2. May mercy, peace and love be multiplied to you. I want those words to echo in your ears as we read the next 23 verses. This is what defines Jude. This is the thing that keeps Jude on track. This is the thing that causes Jude to be able to say what he's going to say. Notice those three words, mercy. What's the next one? Peace and love. The three hallmarks that define what Christianity is really all about. We are a people of mercy, peace and love. But did you notice that Jude is saying, may they be multiplied to you? It's almost as if, in fact, it's not even almost. Jude is saying this, these are things the Christian has received. These are things that have come to the Christian. These are not what we work at. These are things that we are given. Mercy, peace and love from God. Verse 3, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith. Once for all delivered to the saints. Now in a moment I want to look at, in a moment, what, what we mean by the canon of Scripture and the inspiration of Scripture. So we'll come to this in a moment. So here James is talking, oh sorry, Jude is talking about the faith. Now in this use of the word the faith, he's talking about a body of belief. This is the group of beliefs that we have. And Christianity is about a set of beliefs. Someone has said Christianity is about a relationship. I understand what you mean, but it's not just that. It is about believing certain things. And James, sorry, Jude says these are things worth contending for. Now notice that word, contending. What, what, what does that paint in your imagination when you hear the word contending? Contending. Now, if it, if it, if it sounds like, you know, put them up, read the rest of this and hear the tone of Jude. Verse 4. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designed, sorry, designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. So there are, there are two things that result from perverting the grace of God that Jude is going to deal with here. The first one is sensuality. If you don't get God, I guess to you, the whole idea of sexual boundaries is going to be a what are you talking about moment for you. If you don't get that we are created in the image of God, and that when God created Adam and Eve and they came together in sexual union, God was saying to the world, this is the intimacy that we, the community of the Godhead, Father, Son and Spirit, enjoy. Father, distinct, different. Son, distinct, different. Spirit, distinct, different. Coming together as one. That which is different, coming together as one. When God created man, he created sexual union to somehow convey the image of God. Man, male, different, 
female, woman, different, coming together. And the Bible says when a man and a woman come together, they become one flesh. It is a picture of the Godhead. It is a picture of the image of God. And, and that all happens within the spirit of covenant. We could take a picture of a piece of paper and put sticky tape on it and say, man joins with woman and then rip it off. And we could go, man joins with another woman. And eventually that sticky tape is going to be good for nothing. And that's what promiscuity does to a person. Mind you, the paper doesn't look too good either. That's what promiscuity does to a woman. God has designed sexual boundaries. And I don't care what Senator Lisa, whatever her name is from the Greens, says it's time to move on from the fuddy-duddy morality of Christianity and become progressive and embrace all expressions of sexuality. I say bunk. And here we have Jude who's going to call this a little bit more than bunk. And Jude is saying, if you pervert the grace of God, it will lead to, here's the word. And when I wrote this down, I thought, oh man, I'm always getting complaints that I'm using big words. And someone's going to see this word and they're going to complain. So I put it in small font for those people who complain. It's the word licentiousness. <clears throat> licentiousness means a license to do whatever you want to do. It's actually used in the King James Version, licentiousness. And so we, people who think the grace of God means, well, whatever I do, God will forgive. I can do whatever I want, God will forgive me. Jude is saying that's a perversion of the grace of God. That's not enjoying the grace of God. That's perverting the grace of God. The other, the other word that we're going to use is the word insubordination. Do you notice that it says, deny our only master. Deny our only master. And so, what do you think when you hear the word master? Well, he's already introduced himself as a servant. So now, we've got this other word, master. What, do you, what does a servant do to a master? Whatever he wants. So here's Jude saying there are people who have perverted the grace of God. They are sensual. They are very sexual. They justify any sexual proclivity they have by saying, well, I don't think God thinks it's a big deal. And God does think it's a big deal. God has defined marriage, man and a woman, for a good reason. There are spiritual reasons why that is needed and necessary. So this other thing of insubordination, God has designed that people submit to authority. And the moment I say that, I get people's hackles up. Because there's something in us that says, no one's going to tell me what to do. <laughs> but here we have Jude, and he's saying, well, then you aren't a servant. And Jesus Christ isn't your master, if that's your attitude. Good preaching, Andrew. <laughs> Verse 5. Now I want to remind you. Notice he's probably writing to men. There's that expression that Jesus used with Peter. I mean, the guy, the chief pope. It, said, it says in John, The third time Jesus saith unto him, 
Some blokes need it said. Anyway, I could keep going. But So here he's saying, I want to remind you. We are creatures who need reminding. And here's Jude saying, now I want to remind you. Although you once fully knew it. Now what does that tell us? It's possible to let things lapse in our thinking. You once knew this. Now I want you to be reminded, he says, that it was Jesus Christ who saved the people out of Egypt and afterward, it says, destroyed those who did not believe. Now, you've got to understand this word believe, not in the, yes, I give mental assent to, but in the Hebrew sense, in the Jewish sense. Believe is something you put your trust in. How do you know you put your trust in? You do it. It, it, it brings about a change of action. If you said, if you're a Hebrew standing at the Red Sea and you said, I believe God has parted the Red Sea and I believe I can walk through and you just stand there, the Hebrew says, I don't care what you say. Until you start walking, you don't believe anything. So here Jude is using believe in the same sense. If you say you believe, you walk the talk. You walk the talk. Your life is different. Your life is different. Verse 6, And the angels who did not stay within their own position of, notice the word, authority. See, he's going to bring out there are angels. They were insubordinate as well. Look how God regards insubordination. But left their proper dwelling... He has kept in, oh boy, this is a scary word, eternal chains. Now, I I know that there are those who say there is no eternal hell. I know there are those who say it. You've got a problem, though, if you hold that position. The Bible. It uses words like everlasting torment. It uses words like eternal chains. I don't know how you get around that. For God to take somebody from this life and say you didn't, Turn to me. You didn't accept my salvation, my forgiveness. So now I banish you from my presence for eternity or I give you the choice of snuffing you out right now so you just don't even exist anymore. The latter part of that is not a validation. It's not an act of love. It's a complete violation of a person. And God doesn't do that. If someone chooses to reject God in this life, God will validate their choice for eternity. That's what a loving God does. Now, if you think that's unfair, I've got good news for you. That's not the only option. As we heard Tony share, there is a gate. There is a way of salvation. There is a way out. We read on. Just as Sodom, verse 7, and Gomorrah, and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality... And pursued unnatural desire. Now, what's he talking about? Let's call a spade a spade here. He's talking about homosexuality. Now, when we talk about God creating man and woman different, becoming one, when a man lies with a man, it is different. With same, it is a mockery of the image of God. And there is something spiritually that God says is an abomination. Let's not be... Let's not be socialised into thinking God doesn't care about these things. He does. And I think we also need to be careful that if we think homosexuality is the biggest sin there is, we don't understand that rejecting Christ is the biggest sin there is. 
And it says, they, served, they serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Hell is real and it will last for eternity. And we should be, as James says, motivated, sorry, Jude says, motivated by it. And we'll see this in a moment. Verse 8, yet in like manner, these people also relying on their dreams. So here's, so here's the, the thing that, that I think there's a key word, which we've already looked at. We're going to look at in a moment again as we bring this to a close. And it's a key word. As we look at this, I think we need to understand this word kept. You see, in verse 1, I think we read, or verse 2, we read kept by Jesus or kept for Jesus, kept. And, and Jude's going to pick up this word again, and he's going to make a distinction between those who are kept by Jesus and those who claim to be kept by Jesus but really aren't. Now, this is heavy going. If you think I'm just being a heavy preacher, I'm not trying to be. All I'm trying to do is look at what Jude is actually saying, not trying to make him say anything different. So here we have Jude using this term kept. There's another term that we're going to see Jude is, is using. And I want you to see here in verse 8 that we have certain qualities that, about, that are about to be identified. So we could look at this as people who are spiritually dangerous. Spiritually dangerous people. Verse 8, look at it with me, would you please? Verse 8, spiritually dangerous people. These are people that claim to have. You notice this? Yet in like manner, these people also relying on their dreams defile the flesh, reject authority, blaspheme the glorious ones. You notice the four things that are happening here? Number one, they claim to have revelation from the Lord. They claim to have, in this instance, dreams from the Lord. We could put words, visions, we could put all kinds of things there. The second thing they do is they are overly sexual. They are overly sexual. They defile the flesh, it says. They are overly sexual, sexual in the way they talk, in the way they dress, in the way they conduct themselves. And the third thing, it says that they reject authority. And then the fourth thing is they are flippant with sacred things. Flippant. You know, when we come to church on a Sunday, yes, we should laugh. Yes, we should be happy. But there is a gravity to what we're doing. There is a sense of the sacred to what we're doing. I don't want to be flippant with that. And here Judah is saying these people are flippant with sacred spiritual things. And he says these people are spiritually dangerous. Let's, let's read on verse 9. And the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses. He did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but he said, The Lord rebuke you. You notice not even Michael the archangel will talk to the devil. And yet I've met Christians who said, this is what we should say to the devil. Give me a break. There's only one person I can see in all of Scripture who is authorised to speak to the devil. And it's not Eve. She started it. And look where we are now. There's only one person authorised to speak to the devil. And that's God. We're not. Jude says, don't do it. He says, not even Michael, the highest angel in heaven, will do it. So good grief, who do some people think they are? I told the devil that if I wanted anchovies on my pizza, I would. <laughs> Flippant, man, don't do that. Don't order anchovy pizza. Anyway, but these people blaspheme all that they do not understand and they are destroyed by that. 
like unreasoning animals, understanding, uh, understand instinctively. Verse 11, woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain. And he, he goes on and he, he's, he's not got very nice things to say about them. And the last part, part of verse 13 says that they will endure the gloom of utter darkness forever. Wow. Oh, my goodness. Now, he says it was about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied. Now, where, well, huh? where do you get that from? Well, there was a book kicking around called Enoch, the book of Enoch. And it seems that he's quoting from it. Now, is he saying this should be a part of the Bible? Not at all. Paul, the apostle, quoted from pagan prophets as well. And that didn't make the pagan prophets inspired by God. But he's using it for illustration purposes. So when we talk about inspiration of Scripture, what we have in the 66 books of the Bible, that's it. Just because he quotes from this book doesn't mean we should regard it as Scripture. But I want you to notice the last part of this paragraph, verse 16, He identifies how we can tell who the spiritually dangerous people are. This is what he says. How to identify spiritually dangerous people. You notice these things, verse 16? It says, These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud-mouthed boasters. Showing favoritism to gain advantage. See that? They are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. You spot people like that, chances are they're dangerous. That's what Jude says. Now, he goes on and he says in verse 19, It is these who cause divisions. Worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. Notice what he says on the other hand. This is what he's doing. These are the people to watch out for. Now, this is how you are to be. He's opened up by saying you are to be kept by and for Jesus Christ. Now he says this, verse 20. But you, beloved, build yourself up. In your most holy faith, pray in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in the love of God. Now, what does that mean if he's telling us we must maintain this? It must be possible for it to grow cold. Keep yourselves in the love of God. Waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. This is how we're to treat people. Have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy without fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Wow. So what do we do? Do we march on the streets and we have God hates Pick your category of people, banners, and wave them around and placard against. That's not what he's saying to do. Have mercy. Have compassion on these people. Hate what they do, but love them and reach them. Boy. And then he finishes up with now unto. And this is what we call a doxology. Dox, doxa in Greek means glory. Doxology, glorious words. And this is considered to be the most profound 
doxology in the Bible. These last two verses, they are profound. Now to him who is able to keep you. You want to know how to pray for your struggling brother or sister? Pray that the Lord keeps them. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Saviour, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion and authority before all time and now and forevermore. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you'll take your word and help us to see that this is a map that shows us where the dangerous minefields are in this life. This word that helps us to see that if we keep it, we will live and we will enjoy and we will have peace and mercy and love. And Father, this word that speaks directly to us and tells us, don't do this. Don't go there. We pray, Lord, that we will be a people that respond with a servant's heart, a servant's spirit, a servant attitude. Oh, God, I pray. And Lord, if there be any listening to me right now that they know they don't have peace with God, they don't know God. Perhaps something is stirred or stirring in their hearts right now. I pray that you, Lord, would call them and invite them and show them you are a loving, forgiving God. And if that's you right now, you know you do not have peace with God. You are one prayer away from an eternity with God. And that prayer is a prayer from your heart that says, Oh God, please forgive me. And help me to live for you. Fill me with your spirit, I pray, so that I can become who you need me to be. And you pray that to Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. Authentic Christian faith, what it's got and what it's not. You've just heard the message, Hey Jude. For a CD copy of Hey Jude, please contact Lagana Media via the website findingtruthmatters.org or at P.O. Box 1143, Lagana, Tasmania 7277. Podcasts and other resources are also available from the Finding Truth Matters website. To subscribe to the monthly e-newsletter Perspectives, visit findingtruthmatters.org and click subscribe. Dr Corbett is pastor of Lagana Christian Church and president of ICI Theological College Australia. We invite you to join us at the same time next week for another Finding Truth Matters.